There we go. That is nice. Okay. Um, how how would you like to be introduced for this interview? I I don't know uh, what type of I guess uh, uh, persona or whatever you want to kind of keep up for 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 this thing. Well, I I'm, guess. I just I mean what what whatever reason you felt like you had interest in talking to me, you just say whatever you want. Well, I I just thought you'd be an interesting guest considering the uh, the whole Condé Nast thing that just occurred. And we can just kind of talk uh, music industry stuff, and uh, sure. which I know you're pretty passionate about and knowledgeable on. And well, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to overstate or oversell the knowledgeable side because basically what's been happening for the last ten years is people people who are pissed off and aren't happy kind of feed me stuff, and um, you know, I don't reveal where I get information from, but at the same time, it's like, it's not just me, you know, people love to think that like, I'm like the most bitter guy and Chris Hotz, Pitchfork's harshest critic. It's like, dude, no, I'm not. I haven't even worked there in 10 fucking years, but I'm, I'm on my own. I'm not trying to write for a living. There's lots of people trying to write for a living who are literally fucked over by this and by other things that Pitchfork's done and they, they can't say anything because they're blackballed. Well, it kind of sounds like, okay, so so while you may not be their harshest critic, it's it would seem that you're their harshest critic uh, just because the fact that, that you saying anything about them doesn't really affect your, your daily life, doesn't affect your personal life, doesn't affect, you know, what you're doing for, for work. And, and on top of that, I think a lot of people tend to uh, put a little bit more weight uh on some of what you're saying because of your uh, long-standing history uh with the with the website well so yeah i start i you know ryan ryan and uh brent decrescenzo and a couple other people had been brent had his own site ryan was just doing his own thing this is like 96 97 in 99 i'm that's when i'm out of school and i'm starting to try to find zines to write for like jessica hopper's Chris Ryan hit it or quit it. Um, you know, these are people who've gone on to to make media and writing and editing their their livelihood. Yeah. And uh, you know, back then we were all just like Craig Finn was writing for Hit It or Quit It, you know, back Lifter Puller was like just coming together and um so yeah, I had the first stretch I did from like ninety nine to oh one and then I wrote this really harsh review of this completely shitty emo band called Shiner. <laughs> Uh-huh. And to be fair, I they came out with a record after the one I trashed called The Egg. Mm-hmm. Uh it was like orange and white, of course, because it was an emo record. Yeah. It had lots it of kind, it kind of sounds like a um a predecessor to the Twitter egg avatar. It is, if you look on the back of it. <laughs> they're probably like they're probably figuring out a way they can get a couple bucks off that actually. Yeah. But um yeah, they they uh they were just this like really corny grunge band. That, you know, because Jay Robbins produced them, they thought they were going to be, you know, totally slotted right in on indie celebrity and they were on DeSoto, you know. Um, But yeah, I ripped them on this record and then the distributor got all bullshit and was like, you know, we're not going to service you anymore. This is fucking bullshit. This is totally like we're not here for your amusement, blah, blah. You don't get our product anymore. And this is right at the same time that another writer got us in trouble with Merge Hmm. for – printing something from Britt Daniel from Spoon, he said something in an interview. And right before he said it, he said, this is off the record. Uh, sorry, no. 
he did not say I have this totally backwards. Britt Daniel didn't say this is off the record. He reached over and turned off the interviewer's cassette player. That doesn't that has no journalistic value. It means nothing. He just reached across the table and turned off his tape player and said something and then turned it back on. Well, we reported that. And mm-hmm. Mer- Merge got totally pissed and we said, look, your your subject, the interviewer, never received a request to go off the record. Mm-hmm. You know. And Merge was like, don't even think about playing that game. You're nothing. You're nobody. So these two things happened, and Ryan was like, well, we're gonna, they're going to blow us up. So, you know, he shit-canned me or whatever. But then, like, after a year and a half, he was like, oh, you know, that, that was stupid. You know, I like Chris. You're a good writer, blah, blah. And that was when I came back and really did the most of the work from, like, uh, <clears throat> I think it was, like, January or February 2002 until uh, – the end of 2000 right before 2005 Hmm. so you know you're talking about like five of god like going 20 years total work so it's like a quarter of the life of the thing i've been directly involved in contributing to it so and those are some pretty formative years for the for the website that's the thing so you, you add the fact that i'm there when it's making its name right before it gets representation from wme before mark geiger comes in before you get the write-up in Time Magazine in 2007. Yeah. Um, I'm there in those early years, and I'm scrumming with everybody. And we had arguments all the time, you know? Like, Brent was always – he always had this, like, a total bug up his ass about me because I was a good writer, and I knew a shitload about music, and so was he, and so did he. And he was kind of like – he wanted to be number one, you know? Hmm. So we always had, like, a kind of a – Number one in terms of making the website number one? No, no, he always wanted to be like the super writer. Like he, oh, okay. he didn't want to be president, you know, chief operating officer or any of that bullshit or okay. editor or editor. He wanted to be, you know, the the Lester Bangs, the he wanted that rep. Okay, yeah. And that's why he wrote the way he did and he was he was fucking great at it. And um I was never that kind of writer. It was a totally different trip, but hmm. because I was like very like theory based and, and and political, you know, social with all my stuff, I think that you know, Brent and I were both going down two very different paths, but we were we were really getting a lot of reaction hmm. for different reasons. Uh, so so as I was saying, I mean, it sounds like these are sort of really formative years for the website where Pitchfork is 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 really trying to not only make a name for itself, but you guys are kind of in the midst of uh, a really interesting sort of social experiment at the same time simultaneously, you know, because, uh, there's not really, a uh, sort of a lot of websites out there like this right now with, with quite the voice that Pitchfork was trying to, uh, to, to sculpt. Am I right? Yeah, we stayed all, it was, it's, they, we stayed all comers, right? So nobody, I mean, I don't know how far you go back with this, but when, when Pitchfork's starting up, you know, you've got a hundred zines, Western Homes, Yacht Zine, Pillow Fight, Drawer B, these are names that are never going to be remembered by anybody except the people who were, you know, their peers. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of these sites that were way fucking better looking and and slicker than Pitchfork. But I had said this in um, uh, the the video and now podcast I put up about William Basinski's The Disintegration Loops. Mm-hmm. Ryan figured out before anybody that you had to have the content was the thing. Content was king, you know. It wasn't just the slick look. No, and Pitchfork, the, the layout was always fucking terrible, dude, yeah. until, until like, uh, you know, they actually hired some some real people to do this latest one that's been in place for, I don't know how many years now, but 
you know, they just got fucked by Conde, so redesign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, well, you're talking about all of these websites that Pitchfork was competing with, but you're referring to them as zines. But, I mean, they really were websites, correct? Oh, yeah, exactly. They were webzines. Yeah, yeah. Webzines so, was the word. Okay, so, so they were webzines, but uh, a, were, did a lot of these sites start paper at some point? Was this basically this competition, this kind of community that you guys were functioning in? Was this as a result of a lot of people who might have been involved with zines prior to this internet age kind of realizing, okay, you know, this internet thing sounds like a great bandwagon to kind of jump on let's try to uh, evolve into this i'd say a hundred percent no um oh. these were people who who had been zine fans but uh-huh. you know the established okay, so grew up reading zines and right. kind of took to the internet to sort of do their own version of it yeah and a lot of the people who contributed you know were, were jumping off of having written for zines and whatever um you had regional big zines like hit it or quit it in chicago yeah and um you know when the web zines were coming out, they were totally independent voices, and that in itself made it hard for it to kind of shake out. Because back mm-hmm. back then, the, the, I mean, the first big big web zine was Buddyhead. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I recall them. Um, I've I've had a few back and forths with some of the people over there. What Travis? Via, uh, yes, Travis, who I think has broken my balls on several occasions. Well, everybody tries to break your balls, but you can't because you're out there every day. It's just like, <laughs> dude, it's exactly like Pitchfork. You don't go away. You know that content is what matters. And that's, you know, whether or not you have a video that gets 5,000 hits or one that gets 1.6 million, you just have to keep doing it. And that was why Pitchfork ended up winning the whole thing. Sure. So so when you say content, are you talking about Pitchfork kind of focusing on the quality of the content consistency of the content or just both it was consistency initially yeah it was like he we had i remember this one time we had this big problem where like everybody flaked just everybody was hung over or shit the bed and there was one day where we're like dude i don't even think we have fucking four reviews we can run let's just i was like well hey, wait ryan what if we do what if we say ray suzuki died so Ray Suzuki was the Alan Smithy, the pen name that everybody used when they wrote something really offensive on Pitchfork. Okay. Yeah, I'll just out that. So if you go back and find anything that Ray Suzuki ever wrote, it's it's a pen name for Sam Chenault. Well, other people, Everett Ryan used it. Um, and so I was like, well, let's just I, – I drew – I still have the fucking image of this probably somewhere on a hard drive. I, we did this whole like funeral on the – like the site went black and it said Ray Suzuki – you know, 1982 to 19 or 2001 or something Uh because we were, we, we had days where literally we're like, I don't think we're going to be opening the store today. And, and Ryan was like, that can't happen ever. Find something, some piece of shit you wrote four years ago, just something. We can't not put up the site every day. Yeah. Even though the readership was nowhere near, you know what I mean? His drive was like, that's the thing that we can never, we can't fall down there. Sure. I kind of have that, that, that same urge as well. <laughs> so you, do. you totally do. And that's, you know, that's, uh, there's a major fucking parallel between what you're doing and what he did. You're doing it on YouTube. He did it on the web. It, there, there's no exaggeration. There's no myth making or convenience in that analogy. It's a legit analogy. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're talking about, uh, this, this 
consistency of just always putting out material. Uh, you're talking about these competitors who might have looked slicker than Pitchfork at the time during the late 90s, the early 2000s. Were they taking days off? Were they just not dropping material on some days? And, and, and the fact that they weren't interacting with their, their, their viewer base, with their reader base, is, is that eventually what kind of made Pitchfork win out down the road? Yep, absolutely. It was it was the tortoise and the hare, and it was, you know, um, p- you'd like people, you'd like sites, and you'd check them every so often. But what became apparent was that Pitchfork was like the CNN of the scene, uh-huh. and you were never gonna not get something when you went there. Hmm. And and so all these other sites, everybody had day jobs, everybody was going to shows or in bands and doing other shit, and it was like. This does, it's not like you make any money and it's like there were no web metrics back then. You didn't even know who was reading your shit. There were no web boards really. God, I don't, it's, I don't remember web boards being a thing even until like 2002-ish something. You know, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I remember web boards really coming up just when I had entered college. So that would that would be around that time, like 2002, 2003, in terms of like, you know, it was a supremely relevant place for music fans to go to. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, if you don't even have web boards, you just have no way of knowing who is reading your stuff. And it yeah. is so fucking hard to get up every day and feel like, yeah, I should totally dedicate six fucking hours to putting up this stuff and, and get two hours of sleep and go to my fucking bullshit job. Like, but yeah. we all, we all did it. I did it for a couple of years and, and, um, you know, obviously Ryan did it for longer than anybody. It's, uh, that's what it took. And, and it, you know, the audience was going to end up being there and it was a question of who was going to be there to feed the audience. And, and he never let up. Hmm. Okay. So, so uh, obviously there's a point at which you guys are always putting up something, even if it's not up to a a certain standard or, or, or whatever. Um, Oh yeah. Nobody, nobody, there's not going to be a Gawker article about the stuff from 2002 that doesn't get cut over to Condé's servers, dude. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So so you're saying that stuff is getting all trashed right now. <laughs> there's, I there's guess. A, there's a digital like, internet fire right now, and it's all kind of rotting away in it. You know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know they have absolutely no basis to negotiate with anyone for transitioning ownership of the content for, of Pitchfork to a new owner as a digital asset and and no other authors that I know of have publicly gone out and said yeah that's not okay what do you want to pay me for that but they are all entitled to do that and they really should mm-hmm. okay um so 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 there's this point in time where pitchforks just you know putting up anything just to very smartly keep the audience engaged uh, but you know you're talking about down the road sort of becoming the CNN to the scene, I imagine over the course of that process of that development, there had to have been some kind of standards or something implemented or else, you know, the the site never would have made it to that point. Correct? No. (laughs) I mean, I mean, it has to be like some kind of standard in terms of consistency because people are at least like expecting something to be there when they get to the site. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, it, it was I mean, exactly how or, or when, I guess, is sort of this schedule or this, you know, these the standards implemented so that the site is kind of this well-oiled machine that's always doing something. Right. So, OK, so the, the transformative moment, the transformative moment there, if Pitchfork ends up, you know, if anybody ever writes the book on Pitchfork, um, the transformational moment was when Pitchfork broke the news that Tom York and PJ Harvey were working on a song together. 
We had that before anybody else. It was the first time we had a scoop. And I, I don't even remember how he got it. It was like some friend working at a fucking PR firm, legging for Pitchfork, saying you should break it here. It'll look really credible, whatever. Mm. Um, but up until that point, there was never a whiff of exclusivity about anything we did. And the news section would get updated like when there was news. Well, there's not the well. You're talking about there's not even a whiff of exclusivity to anything that you did, but simultaneously, this person in PR saw some kind of authenticity in what you were doing, and and that couldn't have been the case if, uh, unless you know, there was an audience who felt that Pitchfork was very a very authentic kind of webzine, or you know, at least more authentic than its competitors in some kind of way. Well, yeah, I say PR, but you know what? That might have been somebody who was working at a record label. I don't remember that clearly. I wasn't. I never edited or touched the news site. That was like Kristen Sage Rockerman and Catherine Lewis and uh, a lot of other people worked on the news site. But for all the people that worked on the news site, we never focused on it, it until Ryan started saying, like, we, this is the most important part of the site. We have to keep the news stuff going all the time. And it was brutal because we didn't have relationships and, and – the big problem along all this, this point at which Pitchfork's becoming established is nobody trusted the internet yet. So mm. no, nobody believed that it was – nobody believed any of the numbers. Nobody was advertising on it. You didn't have you know, uh, any imprimatur as a, as a brand Yeah. until you know, WME, Artist Management, Mark Geiger, these people come in and bless you. And you get people like Questlove dropping your name in an interview until you're you're christened and coronated by existing celebrity. You know what I'm saying? It's a battle to get anything out of anybody. No, I I I definitely understand that. I mean, not that yeah, you know, Danny, sort of Danny Brown. What's up? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, <laughs> there there have been numerous instances, you know, and 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 it's and I don't know if you know this is just because I'm kind of in the thick of it and and um. You know, I don't have the same view uh, that other people do of it, especially someone like you who's been in the industry, uh, you know, longer or at least, you know, has uh, been in it a little bit, you know, kind of back in the day. Um, you know, I almost feel as if uh, that sort of stuff maybe doesn't pull the attention toward me that it could because everything is just such an onslaught right now on the Internet. Yeah. You know, it's it just kind of seems like endorsements are just the name of the game and everybody's getting endorsed in every direction all day. <laughs> no, no question. And also, you don't run yourself like a fucking, you know, brand. You don't have I mean, I don't I don't know what you have and I don't know, you know, if you're if you're signed up with any artist management, but the way that you've been doing stuff doesn't lend itself to strategic you know, campaigns, whether they're, whether they're publicity campaigns or, or it's music release campaigns, whatever it is, the way you work is so nonstop that it's not like there's a package deal to, you know, to get your, your brand solidified or whatever. You're just doing it all the time. So they don't have any effectiveness there. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the most, I guess I kind of think of my brand in, 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 ter in those sorts of terms is when, I guess an album is coming out that I really feel like, you know, I'm anticipating it and I really need to review it, not only for uh, the fact that I'm curious about it as a music fan, but also because reviewing it or not reviewing it is going to impact the the relevancy of of my website. You know, it's and, and it really has I'm, I'm sure in some way it does have some kind of impact in terms of whether or not the review is positive or negative. But I know that just not reviewing it isn't an option, you know. 
Well, this is the Taylor Swift problem that Pitchfork's had. Uh-huh. That there has been um, <clears throat> basically, if Ryan doesn't think something is cool or he mm. thinks it's at a level that's wrong for his audience, this has been the thing that has stayed the longest. The subjective, well, we wouldn't write up Janet Jackson. We wouldn't write up, you know, there's this poptimist, rockist problem. It's always yeah, been. Yeah, it's kind of a balance. It's always been there with Pitchfork. And the fact that they didn't review any of Taylor Swift's stuff is just like a huge fuck up. It's this mm-hmm. old mentality of indie. It's like, dude, we knew that was dead so long ago. Yeah. I mean, simultaneously, I mean, I have to kind of admit I'm in the same boat. I totally ignored Taylor Swift's last full-length LP. I mean, I guess I am planning on reviewing the new Adele record when when that drops. That's um, but that's fucking crazy. How can you review one and not the other? It's it's not even you know it's it's not even that I feel justified in not reviewing the Taylor Swift record. I mean, it's something that if I could go back in time, I probably would do it at this point. And honestly, I mean, you know, the whole raucous sort of thing, I guess, is an ideology that I kind of slipped into when I got into punk rock music in high school. And it's something that I've been slowly kind of growing out of as an adult. And while I still appreciate a lot of underground stuff and a lot of experimental rock, um, you know, I've sort of come to understand and, and, and sort of feel that not only for my well-being as, you know, somebody who owns a business but also as a music fan you know the the this pop stuff uh this chart topping stuff is uh you know you can't argue that it's always just as good or it's always just as entertaining as the underground stuff i mean you know the underground stuff can get pretty awful as well but i guess it's just as deserving of critical assessment as the underground stuff yeah, but I, I don't, you know, the distinction I always make when I talk about this is effort. So there was effort required to even get a fucking record out when sure. you had physical media. And that's the whole punk rock, you know, hardcore seven inch thing going back to the late 80s and all the way through the 90s, whether it's like, you know, you know, quiet, shuffly footed, you know, sad boy indie pop or it's, you know, fucking roughneck hardcore bands. It, it, you're nobody's doing it for you. And so now that music is media in the same way as a tweet, there's no effort required. It's just a question of whether or not you hit. You have the same platforms as everybody else. Hmm. So, you know, yes, Taylor Swift is like, you know, mainstream corporate celebrity management. And that's totally fucked up. But at the same time, if you make a really good record, it can go through the exact same channels to just as many people. You're just not going to be playing, you know, the fucking mega tours and, and doing, you know, celebrity endorsement campaigns with makeup, you know, or whatever. Sure. You, you may not make as much money and you may not have as many opportunities, but the audience is just as accessible to you through almost the same channels. I mean, Taylor Swift's not on Spotify, right? Yeah. I can be on Spotify. So I got her there. They have 75 million fucking listeners. <laughs> Well, that's true. You can be on Spotify. And like a thousand of them are ever going to listen to my shit because it just isn't, it's not appealing on that level. But that's what I'm saying. Like the potential to confront the same size audience is there for anybody. Yeah. So the indie thing's dead. It is dead. It's been dead. But now it's like incontestably, totally fucking 9,000 feet under cement gone. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like that's. Uh, unfortunately solidified in so many ways. I mean, I feel like indie in terms of what's indie uh, Ban- is Bandcamp. That's indie. Well, I mean, he- here's the thing. I mean, I think indie in terms of 
I guess, kind of a, a lifestyle or I guess a, uh, I don't know, I guess you would call a functionality style for a band as we knew it in the 90s. I mean, do you think it's truly dead or do you think it's sort of simply evolved? You know, I mean, no, I think I think the tools are have kind of changed, you know? No, I, I think it's completely dead because you don't have to do anything to get your music heard except promote it. You have sure. the same captive audience as anyone else. When when you're putting out a seven inch and you live in some fucking shithole in Somerville or you know real Brooklyn back when you know before like anything had happened and it was really actually fucked up and scary, um, mm. you know you're going to some show and there's no internet coverage. Nobody's there's no. It was such a pain in the ass. I was in New York during the whole Strokes Interpol period, and you know Pitchfork's in Chicago. And it's a big fucking problem. And I'm screaming at Ryan, like, dude, we got to start a bureau here. Do you know what a bureau is? Like, we need to get a bureau started. We need to have people on the fucking ground. We need to be promoting shows in New York. This is like 2005 when I'm quitting, hmm. um, when CMJ of that year. And um, it was a big problem. I was like, you, you got you to have people on the ground here. Yeah, because and it was a music scene worth covering. Well, and also there was this whole like, you know, chafing second city problem. You might as well have been based in Boston. Um, you know, sure. well, yeah, let's review 12 rods, but not, you know, go get somebody to interview the strokes face to face. That's really good play. Yeah. And that was the problem. It was just like that that second city indie, you know, go to the show, my friend's band. We didn't know. There was no metrics to understand how nationally big Pitchfork was. It was fucking huge with no evidence. Hmm. And I was screaming it at people, and they were like, "Dude, you're so full of shit." Like, I, there's a there's a big ILM thread from way back where I'm such a fucking dick. But it's like 2003, and I'm like, "Dude, Pitchfork's bigger than Spin. Deal with it." And people are like, "You're such a fucking psycho. You're so crazy." But it was true. Hmm. I mean, Spin at that time was going into the full, whole fucking you know panic at the disco period where they just bit so hard on makeup, Fallout Boy, emo crap. I don't know. It, it, there were so many different things happening at once in terms of the destruction and upheaval that was just – it was so crazy. And there was nothing to point to to be like this is what reality looks like. It was just all anxiety. It was all anxiousness, anxiety, nerves, insecurity, people afraid of losing their jobs. One week you come in and you know your cover is the best thing that's come out in the last year on spin and you're so happy. And then the next issue comes out and it's like you're fired. Yeah. It was fucking nuts because nobody, nobody had anything definitive to point to. Okay, so you, you've just brought up so much. Um, I'm not asking you to respond to this, but I'm just going to say I can kind of see how starting in a city like Chicago, you know, and doing what you guys were doing would have, you know, sort of solidified, you know, in Pitchfork, uh, you know, the kind of pro underdog kind of mentality that the site has, you know, sort of, uh, shopped around for, for such a long time. Um, and, and simultaneously, uh, I think that while, you know, you say that at this point, indie is dead and, you know, while you were kind of working at the site during that period, it was dying. Um, you know, it was definitely on its last breath in a sense. Uh, I could definitely see how kind of sticking to those guns, at least a little bit kind of ended up saving, the website from kind of going down that same road that, uh, spin did, um, you know, endorsing bands like panic at the disco in the way that they did, or, you know, oh, are that's... you saying, are you saying that, you know, kind of covering those bands would have been okay, just as long as the, 
reviews ended up negative or something. No, no, it would have been a problem. And it was good that Pitchfork stayed away from that whole thing because it was run by big labels and it was the it was a big label old school music industry push. And it's what killed Buddyhead because Buddyhead was too close to L.A. And so, sure. you know, Travis is out there and he's like, oh, dude. I'm fucking with Fred Durst, bro. I'm, at a, I'm, you know, I'm going to so many fucking clubs, dude. I got his phone number. You guys are all little fucking nobodies. I'm hooked. And then it was like, oh, shit. You just burned a bridge you didn't even have, dude. Like, nobody in L.A. was going to fucking fund you. You were such a fucking mess. So, you know, he just – that guy's ego fucked himself so hard. Like, oh, it was such a – it was really sad because he was brilliant. And, but the site just became Howard Stern's whack pack so fast. It just became a nightmare of like scenes for ball washing, and it was just garbage. <laughs> uh, tell me if you know uh, you think I'm totally wrong in this, but I mean, I, I guess indie, uh, it, in a sense, it's dead. But I think it's dead because it kind of lost its its independence. I think in some kind of sense it's still there but i think the the issue of 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 sort of assuming it it has all the same characteristics that it used to is that you know really what what's going on is sort of like what you were saying you know if you put up a a a record it's kind of in that same airspace that you know taylor swift's new record is i think the issue with indie uh is that you know really it's just kind of mixed in with everything else now everything is mixed the fuck together and there's really kind of no cultural or social boundaries uh separating all of it you know all of it anymore um you know it's 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 kind of interesting because uh, you know maybe my music tastes and my sensibilities you, you might find them a little odd because i'm a bit younger than you but the people who view my videos who are younger than me um and and not that i think it's totally weird because i've kind of grown into this sensibility but but as a kid um you know i wasn't listening to both death grips and lady gaga and and that's not even something i would have thought to do if you know those artists had come out when i was younger um you know but however uh, some of these kids hit me up and they show me their last fms and they listen to everything from fucking napalm death to uh bell and sebastian to the new carly ray jepsen record or some shit Right. So that's that's syncretism. And the syncretism thing is that's infected kids because there's a there's an addiction in saying I am totally immune to categorization. I am so comfortable crossing all lines. And that was really what Poptimism was about because of the dominant, you know, the dominant aesthetic of indie and the hangover from indie and Godspeed, you black emperor and all this fucking nonsense, you know, like that whole pretentious, you know, period you know it was like what if i just listened to you know fucking paula abdul is that a problem sure Uh, so you know but the other thought i have about that is so yeah you have the indie kids the kids who so i when i think of indie kids i think of kids who are sort of intellectually into music that to me is what indie is about and 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 it no longer means finding obscure, sacrosanct, holy records. I got, you know, LAMF and, and nobody else has it in my town or whatever. You know, I have the Parubu. I have dub housing. Before they, before they released the, the Data Panic in the Year Zero box set, nobody had ever heard Parubu for like 10 fucking years. Mm-hmm. Nobody had heard any of those first records. And, you know, I had a buddy who was down in New York and he's at all the, you know, crazy, you know, other music and whatever and he's getting those records but they're the only people on the planet who are able to get vinyl of new picnic time and dub housing or whatever so Mm. that that kind of you know librarian obsessive thing 
was part of it. But what, what I wanted to say in a completely different direction, but it's relevant is, and it's surprising for me to bring it up, but where is this whole modern problem of the collapse of credibility and authenticity felt more than in rap and hip hop? Hmm. Because, oh, you're a rave rapper. You're fucking, you know, you're coming out of the gate with this corny fucking synth wash bullshit for the club. And you're basically a drive time fucking bumper cart for, you know, going to a show after and living this fake ass fucking advertised bullshit lifestyle. Lifestyle rappers are a fucking huge problem. You know what? Ha- nobody fucking heard that Diamond Dogs record, dude. Mm-hmm. It's ancient as shit. And I sound like a fucking stand to bring it up. But I fucking love that record. And those dudes were singing about shit like having to get a job with their white voice. Mm. That's a legit cultural, you know, sentiment. If you're a young black person, that's frustrating as shit. But nobody's talking. Listen to what comes out in fucking rap now, dude. It's like, dude, it's not it's not 1997 anymore. What the fuck are you guys talking about? So are you saying that hip hop is in need of the same kind of authenticity check as indie is? Or are you saying that indie is lacking the kind of authenticity checks that hip hop somehow has? Because No, no, I'm saying hip hop has been more destroyed by the absolute leveling of the playing field and the accessibility to, you know, broad, massive, captive audiences. Hmm. Hip hop has been hurt so much worse because, you know, local scenes – local scenes are just destroyed because all you need is one established guy to to tap you on the fucking shoulder and you're in the stratosphere in 10 seconds you're a celebrity rapper sure well i I think that's for a a multitude of reasons and i think that's part of the reason that um hip-hop is uh sort of replacing rock and roll in a lot of senses i mean so many interesting and, and so many genre changing things all happening at once at the end of 2010 I mean, you've essentially got the end of the bling era. Yep. You have Kanye's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which brought tons of, you know, once not rap listeners into the fold. You have the internet sort of influencing, um, you know, and also access to technology influencing a lot of young rappers to just put their stuff up online rather than playing the label game. Um, and you have tons of people just uh, uh, sort of listening to and putting out really alternative shit that on the democratized internet is sort of floating to the top. And as a result, just all of these really rapid changes are occurring all at once. So so have you ever checked out Blackhearts, that collective in Denver? No, I haven't. Okay, so there's this guy, Jonas, Jonas Abram. Um, <clears throat> I've never met this guy. We've only talked through Twitter. But, you know, he was in this, like, f- fucking really cool... Um, you know, chopped, it's not chopped and screwed. It's, it's, it's way more goth and, and, um, <clears throat> in touch with, with femininity and in, in a way like, so Blackhearts was around and, and doing stuff. And, um, like, you know, sp- you know, spooky black, that kid. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Right. So spooky black is more like a moo style, whatever, um, appreciation for just like suburban, you know, nihilism or something that sure. ki- that kid's whole deal. I fucking love that first record. I was going crazy for it two years ago or whatever, but <laughs> you know, these guys are out in, in Denver and these guys are lifer hip hop got, they know hip hop inside and fucking out. It's yeah. in their blood. Yeah. And they've had opportunities. They've had all this, like, you know, people sniffing around them. And I think Giannis is going out on his own. Um, he's kind of, 
been in touch with me recently after a, a dry spell. But I love their fucking music because it spoke to this sense of like, it's still a struggle. Like, it's not like it's hard for hip hop to get made or noticed or appreciated. It's not like it's invalid as a genre and operating in, in darkness. We're not. But the way I want to do it, nobody cares about the way I want to do it. But I believe in the way I want to do it. And I know I have fans who believe in the way I want to do it. Yeah. And and so that's sort of what I'm saying. Like, these guys have done some really fucking cool, beautiful shit. And and I the stuff that I liked the most of, of the of that that I heard and, and it's been shared by them and put out or whatever, that wasn't necessarily even their favorite material. But I responded to it crazy, like rabidly, and I was like, Oh my fucking god, this is like you know, we, everybody gave Salem so much shit for, you know, basically doing like, you know, audio blackface. You know, you can make that argument. Fine. I don't agree with it. But these guys were in that same kind of whatever you said about Witch House. They were in they were all up front about goth. He wore Bauhaus T-shirts and he's like, yeah, I fucking love all this shit. And hip hop is my life. And when you see him, when you see interviews with Big Boy where he's like, you know, my crazy uncle gave me hounds of love when i was a kid you know my, he rolled up to me on a skateboard and chucked me the tape for hounds of love and it changed my life and running up that hill is like my favorite song those are the kinds of people that just like i get it's like fucking injecting a drug i'm so stoked that the the lines can be blurred in a community that is so often pressured to conform yeah i mean throughout you know the 90s and the 2000s there were certainly examples of 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 people kind of uh uh you know serious oddballs in hip-hop and not even just hip-hop you know all all sort of forms of music culture but you know if if the internet has kind of uh erased anything it's it's sort of been the shadows under which those kinds of gems hide now you know yeah and, yeah and, that's and a really good is, point well yeah you know the thing is i mean i i think uh uh now that those shadows are gone I feel almost as if like n nobody's kind of allowed to sit in a space and kind of ruminate and get weirder and weirder anymore. So that when you finally stumble upon it, it's like this weird disfigured mutant thing that you didn't even think could exist. Ah, uh, so um, we're talking, we're talking about the new Wolf Parade record, aren't we? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't even heard the new Wolf Parade. Well, record. they just put out this fucking insane, like kraut rock fucking nine minute dirge. Uh, -huh thing on sound on soundcloud and there's a song called todd t-o-d-d -D, with periods my favorite meme you know going back to 1997 i was fucking spelling things with periods between them. it was i don't know why it's a stupid <laughs> everything's an acronym it's just this stupid fucking thing that nerds gravitate to but they've got this new record that's like the exact representation of what you're talking about it's like what no age said they did but didn't actually do we went off and we're actually on another planet right now and don't give a fuck. And the music proves it. So check it out. But even in the instance of Wolf Parade, you know, you're talking about a band that has, uh, you know, the least, you know, at least some relevant still and some people looking at them and expecting something from them and you know not to say that uh uh and 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 not to say that they're beyond you know giving a fuck you know i'm I'm sure that you know if 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 you say it's the truth you know it could potentially be the truth but you know uh, another thing about you know sort of back then is that you know simultaneously while people kind of have this time to ruminate you know while they're putting this music out uh 
it's almost as if they're just kind of launching their music into this nothingness where it's getting no response whatsoever and kind of the uh the real age pre-internet age um that could be a really scary situation to 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 deal with for a long time and just continually putting music out there as you grow more and more insane because of a lack of human interaction well look at what happened with fucking animal collective remember when the the main dude put out that like backwards piece of shit record with his girlfriend or whatever sure yeah oh my god i mean that's the fucking definitive example of how stupid this thing is like you're internet famous okay but you're internet famous for doing one thing and doing it the same way just like a pop star was in the 80s, you know? If fucking, sure. you know, Michael Jackson's not coming out with a fucking backwards acoustic jam, you know, on mushrooms, and people are going to find a way to, to fucking sell that to FM radio. It's not going to happen. Yeah, and, and that's the thing about internet fame. I think it kind of influences uh, people to, and, and I don't know why, I mean... You know, if if you've been observing internet fame for any longer than two years, I don't know why it wouldn't dawn on you, but it seems almost as if uh, when people get blasted with this internet fame that it's almost like there's this sense of invincibility. So it's like they can almost release anything. So instead of getting something that's supremely weird and out there, really what you're getting is something that is sold as supremely weird, but it really just kind of sounds like very aloof and like you didn't try at all well so in in um when i re-recorded one of my videos as a podcast about richard goddard the guy who is in the strange loves um i had a little one there were there there are things in there that are that are essentially read from the text of the original video but i went on some some tangents too and one of the little one-offs i had was with the internet it's no overhead no profit so it, you can have a nine to five job and come home and dick around on a four track and put that shit out on the internet and be famous in some way and like not have to worry about whether or not it's going to allow you to make a living because hmm. you're already making a living another way. But music fandom is available to you in as a moonlighting gig. That's fucking crazy. All music fans are available to you without you having to make a career out of it. Hmm. So look at Sugar Ross and, and, you know, the stuff that Jonesy and those guys were doing after they had established themselves. They're like, dude, I live in Iceland. I'm all set financially and I'm not worried about getting rich. So I'm not really going to play this game. I'm not worried about, you know, growing my fan base or, you know, any of this Hmm. bullshit. Or maybe even the knife to an extent. Yeah, no, same deal. Right, right. And um, that's that's actually a, a perfect, you know, example of the same phenomenon. They'll 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 do that, and it's not because they think obscurity is a good play for them strategically to make more money. It's because it's what they want to do, and you can't you can't take away their audience because they're just always there. Sure. So, are you sort of? Uh, it's it seems like you know we've almost kind of diverted into two different situations over here. Um, you know, you're saying that you know groups like the Knife, like Cigarettes, for example, um, you know they're not necessarily worried about appealing to the widest audience because where they are, they're set. You know, they're not worried about whether or not their next record is going to allow them to eat. But simultaneously, it seems like there's some kind of quality control or a certain something that's indescribable there when somebody actually has to worry about how much their next album is going to cost them. Yep. So, you know, (laughs) which side of the fence is the right one to be on? Or, I mean, I suppose a great record could come out of either situation. It kind of seems like, 
the situation you don't want to be in is when everything costs you nothing. Well, so then I guess you stop caring. Well, that so the, my my anecdote for this, and it's sort of perfect. I interviewed Panda Bear um, for Noah for the Village Voice right before I flipped out on the Village Voice for doing things that were so incredibly anti-journalistic and quit. I had talked to him on the phone while he was in the studio doing um, uh, Merriweather. Sure. And I said to him, this is going to be a big problem for you because I can tell you right now, and this is like in February of that year, I said, I am telling you right now, I know Ryan Schreiber, Bros is going to be Pitchfork's number one album of the year. I'm telling you this now. I know it. It's a fact. And it was. And this is literally, you know, one month into the year. And he's like, nah, bro, thanks, dude. That's so sweet. You're so nice to say that, dude. And I was just like, oh, shut the fuck up. Turn off your bullshit. You know, fucking stop saying everything sweet. I fucking can't stand your shtick, dude. <laughs> but that, you know, that's his whole little, like, shell that protects him. He's fucking got a family and he had a new kid. And we were talking about that because my daughter was, like, five months old at that point when I did this interview with him. And I tried to pose this question to him. I'm like, how is this going to work for you when you're like 10 times more famous than the band you're in? That's already sort of famous, but like you actually become a mainstream name. Like Panda Bear is going to be bigger than uh, Animal Collective. And he's like, no, dude, I don't know, dude. I don't think about that stuff. Well, you're going to be soon. And, (laughs) you know, like, look what happened. He keeps trying to put out records and maintain Panda Bear and Animal Collective is fucking dunzo. Sure. And his Panda Bear records fucking suck. He hasn't done dick since bros. Hmm. It's just like he gets distracted by all this shit. Like he goes and does his DJ gigs in fucking Lisbon or whatever. And like that's the reality he surrounds himself with. So this is that whole nine to five thing. He's just putting out music in the course of his life because his life is sort of all set. And that's a whole other argument about how set the guys in Animal Collective have always been. Um. And and this gets into the problem of rich people making music because they can afford to dick around all the time. Hmm. So I did a video about Bruno Mars and and Mark Ronson, and I'm like, that guy has that's a rich kid dicking around who's done Amy Winehouse's Back to Black and is like taken every fucking ounce of the privilege that was available to him and returned on that and made the best fucking sounding coolest, uh, you know, coolest ideas, fucking Smith, that Smith's cover, uh, uh, you know, like the, the Charlatans uh, cover of the only one I know, like that shit's fucking brilliant, just great ideas. And that's what I want from people who have the time to just keep shoving shit into the pipe because they're all set in their lives. Hmm. Just do stuff that's like fucking brilliant and fun. Don't do indulgent fucking space jams in your basement that's just not even trying (laughs) well um no offense to your actual music anthony i've heard some of it no that's 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 fine (laughs) uh, (laughs) and and not that not that i totally felt like i was making any space jams and not that i have anything against space jams i mean great movie um dude but uh are we gonna have to talk about tool no, I wasn't even going to go down that okay, road. So okay. let's just okay. let's let's just let's just put a warning sign up on that road, <laughs> and let's just let's just block that road off before anybody even goes down it. All right, get me back on track. So, get me back on track. I'm I'm trying. I'm trying. You're just kind of like, uh, 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 I guess a mastiff that I have on a leash, and I'm trying to just pull you in the right direction. I'll be- and I'm just uh, but a little girl, and you're just kind of whipping me around wherever you want to go. Uh, but having said all that. 
Um, it, it kind of brings up an interesting point that I've, I've talked with my significant other about, um, about how it seems like, uh, it, I guess since the two thousands, it's, it's, it's almost as if there's this increase in the amount of interest, uh, that people who seem to come from very wealthy backgrounds have, and just kind of either making pop music or making indie music. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the, uh, or where the fascination comes from. Maybe they just kind of come from wealth. So they kind of want to, I don't know, I guess slum it a little bit, um, in the indie scene, or they just kind of want to reject that background that they come from. I'm not exactly sure, uh, where exactly the, the desire lies or where it kind of, uh, fruits from, uh, well, but at, I dude, think, uh, that's, that's I, Anthony, that's, that's Iggy pop. That's hmm. Michael Gira. That's David hmm. Bowie. Sure. These are all well-off kids of, okay. of wealthy parents who had every advantage in life. And yet they just wanted to thumb their noses at it and hmm. just be, you know, spoiled fucking brats. Gear, gear dad made fucking more money than you can imagine. He had, he was pre accepted to the same fucking school that the strokes went to. And hmm. he was like, yeah, he just didn't show up. Sure. You know, he wanted to fuck around in Europe and be fucking credible. It's weird. You know, it, hmm. it's weird. The rejection of the privilege that you're afforded. You try to reject it because you know, dad doesn't get me or whatever. And you got these fucking, you know, huge issues, whether it's Oedipal or, 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 you know, Saturnian whatever classical fucking complex you have hmm. the problem is you can't run from it you know and you end up putting out a record with your dad on the cover well I think um uh, okay so so you've definitely illustrated that the point goes further back than than my personal experience yeah uh, because you know I can only talk about you know where I've kind of come up but I guess um the point I was eventually going to make is that uh, it seems like they're thumbing their noses up to that, as you said, but simultaneously, uh, it still seems like there's a big shame factor because there's not really kind of this discussion of class in the indie world. Because I think if, uh, you know, despite the fact that it puts on this facade that it's so down to earth, it's so blue collar, it's so low budget, it's so DIY, yeah. but simultaneously, you know, that that sort of class discussion doesn't happen because if, if, if it were to happen some people would have to admit where they come from <laughs> well it's funny because you know look at dive right so i'm not going to call this fucking guy cole his name is zach <laughs> great burp thank you so like you know mike sniper you know and capture tracks and all this shit they're selling this whole fucking you know washed out chemical burn that's a bad phrase i shouldn't have said washed out they're <laughs> They're selling this whole, like, you know, bad Polaroid, Lana Del Rey, up, 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 you know, this fucking, this California daydream little bullshit. You know, these are fucking, these are Lindsay Lohan. No, Lindsay Lohan actually was not wealthy, but these are just massive, massive privileged people that have, they have no responsibilities in life. They have every fucking connection available to them to do whatever they want in media. Hmm. He's a fucking fashion model, dude. Come on. You know, and and yet he wants to market himself as a you know quiet little Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain, yeah, I I recorded my album in a church, and I reject my you know prep school upbringing. And those people didn't understand me, and they were mean to me. God, man, what the fuck? You know, like okay, well, what about the kid who can't afford to buy a fucking guitar? Is that kid's voice like getting heard? No. It's you because you can afford to do this shit. Sure. 
well, it just kind of seems like these are the conversations that that we're not really having. We're not uh, having them. We're it not at all. Like, Anthony, I, I I don't know you, but I have a pretty yeah. good idea that you come from a solid fucking working class background. Yeah, kind of. So. I, I mean, I know where I know the area you're from. It ain't the fuck. It ain't Watermill, you know. Um, and you know, I'm one generation removed from fucking literally bailing hay in Indiana. That doesn't mean anything for me. I grew up in a total fucking one percenter town. That's the only experience I have. Hmm. But my parents didn't. They they worked to get there to get me in that school. So it wasn't like I was getting fucking guitars and and i could just go out and mom you know i think i like drums and get a fucking you know eighteen hundred dollar drum set or get a fucking twenty three thousand dollar guitar that saint vincent you know put her fucking name on the 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 expense of making music is not inconsiderable Hmm. um when you start playing shows it's not cheap and if you're not famous and you don't have an audience that can guarantee you show up and and bring in a huge fucking door for you. How are you making the money? You're not making the money through music. You already had it. Hmm. I don't know, man. Uh, You know, I look at something like YouTube and what you're doing, huge equalizer, huge equalizer. The same way the internet was for Ryan to come out and take on Rolling Stone. It's the same thing you're doing, you know, and it's because YouTube is saying we're a TV station. Anybody can put on a show. And if your show gets a lot of attention, we'll give you a couple of bucks. Uh, it's a it's fucking it's a great fucking situation. In my in my opinion, the, the yeah. whole content thing of YouTube and the content thing of the internet, knowing, well, we can pay a semi living, you know, middle class wage to somebody without mm-hmm. much problem, off the architecture we built and re- remunerate you for you know, contributing to this, this farm. All right. Um, while this, this whole thing has been interesting, I feel like we've gotten a little bit off of, you know, why I originally wanted to have you on here. Okay. You know, we have talked about a lot of cool stuff. Um, but sort of getting back to, uh, pitchfork, but more the modern era, you know, I mean, I'm sure there, there's a, a whole, you know, spot from when you left up until, you know, 2010, where I'm much more familiar with the site and much more intimate with kind of their writing style and what was going on uh, as business-wise, at least from the outside. Um, you know, as far as uh, this recent buyout with uh, Condé Nast, which is originally why, you know, I sort of wanted to bring you on here, um, you know, is is this a, a game changer in any kind of way? Does this alter uh, the, the future of the site in any kind of way? Are we to expect any kind of voice or coverage change from the website uh do you think because while some people have predicted that and and maybe it's true uh you know i I don't i don't see how it couldn't not affect it in any way Uh, simultaneously i feel like pitchfork has sort of voluntarily been grooming itself to make itself marketable for such a buyout for for a while no, there's no question. There were offers. The thing is, like, so. Uh, um, well, I mean, as as you just kind of mentioned right there, uh, and this couldn't have been the first offer that had been thrown on the table. You know, this has to have been one of many. Up no, until no, this point. no, I know. And I'm just I'm trying to choose my words because I don't want to get into shit that I've said on Twitter and whatever, because it's not um, I don't want to get into accusations and, and stuff, but. What I'd say is that Ryan turned down 
more venture capital money than you can even fucking believe from people who just wanted to buy his cool. Um, and he's been doing it for almost 10 fucking years. Um, not real. I mean, let's say five, let's be fair for, for more than five years. Um, pure media based venture capital firms have been offering Ryan millions of dollars for pitchfork tens of millions of dollars and he's turned him down consistently and that mm. that just i don't care what you think about conde or the acquisition the speculation about who, what he and caskey got and whether or not anybody else who's worked for the site and helped build it like say so like right people left the shit on ian cohen right i can't fucking stand him that's fine but it, without ian cohen what the fuck nobody else is getting hysterical reactions on the site dude like, sure. They're just not. I don't like the guy. I don't like his writing. I hate his fucking taste. He's wrong. He didn't live through emo. I did. I know what emo was. I played shows with those bands. He's just fucking wrong. He's a fanboy. Hmm. He should not be speaking for anyone about what emo or fucking anything in the 90s was. Hmm. Because not only was he not there, he hasn't done the history. But his writing pisses people off it's like drew magary at, at gawker he's the drew magary of pitchfork and that's important they don't have good writers a good if you measure a good writer by somebody who gets reaction and keeps attention focused on your site he's the most important writer they've had for the last three years that's fucking crazy but it's true but do you think writing is really, is really what sort of sells the the site anymore, at least, or at least the writing on the reviews? It never was. It was never about the writing. It was about the reaction. If the right, sure. if the right, well, I mean, the the writing would have to be. Well, I guess, I guess, my question is to make it more pointed. Do you think people are really reacting to the writing on the reviews these days as much as they used to? Uh, because it seems like you know, at least when I go on the boards where. I'm being discussed as well as pitchfork. People are reacting more to the scores than they are simply what's being said or written. Well, anybody who's worried about that, <clears throat> I, I'm, I've never understood that, but it's become more apparent to me that there is now legitimacy in worrying about that because of the effect of best new music, which when that first came out, we'd laughed about it. We were like, yeah, oh, okay. What is, okay. So this is like, what is this? This means nothing. But then, very quickly, it meant everything. Hmm. And, and you see young kids in, in PR companies and new labels that start up. Their whole life revolves around potentially getting a best new music from Pitchfork. Sure. That's fucking crazy to me, dude. Because we used to joke about how bad labels wanted to be able to put a Pitchfork pull quote on a sticker on the front of their CD. Hmm. And that was like a two-year window. And then after that, it just changed over to we don't even the CD sales don't matter. We need some way for the site itself to distinguish this release beyond the numerical rating. And that's when I came up with this joke about tranching because anybody who's ever been friends with or had anything to do with Pitchfork but isn't hooked up with a PR firm that's you know negotiated and manufactured a campaign through pitchfork and his friends with pitchfork they're never getting best new music they're getting tranched they're going to get a 7.4 through 7.8 not best new music and their record's going to die on the vine and it just happened to wax idols and it, it happens over and over again 
you know, if you're not fed right up the food chain, you're not rep by the right people, there's no guarantee that you're going to be available. There's no, you know, for Pitchfork Festival or whatever. It's become so industrial that it is now, it's gone from being a joke to being, this is deadly fucking serious. It's deadly fucking serious, but simultaneously, do you think the best new music tag has as much weight as it used to? Because I think, you know, with the rise of the internet and the democratization of everything, uh, you know, as far as music taste and, and the dissemination of music, uh, it's it seems like it's less of a decider than it used to be. It's more of like a, one of many stars that have to kind of align in order for an artist to get, you know, sort of <clears throat> supreme, I guess, kind of critical uh, you know, positive critical reception. It's kind of the Metacritic age. You know what I mean? Well, uh, uh, yeah. all of these scores are kind of being aggregated by your Metacritics and your Wikipedias, uh, you know, more than they are just being observed by, you know, groups of fans who are only going to those single sites to read that one review. And that's it. I don't know. I actually, <clears throat> the, the, the case I would make there is, you know, yeah. Um, Twitter people and people who worry about metadata and Metacritic, kind of responses and and look to feel some sort of consensus for what's going on set them aside you go try and book a tour with a best new music designation and then go try and book a tour without one Hmm. let me know how that goes (laughs) no i believe you it's that's it that's it i mean best new music means you're there Everybody in the pipeline knows they can book you safely. You're going to pull 250 to 500 people, you know, and you're going to pull over 1500 in New York. Best new music is currency. It's so crazy to think it, but it's so fucking provable. No, I mean, it's, it's, it certainly is, you know, and, and I can pull from a ton of different experiences. I mean, uh, I went to go see, the pains of being pure at heart at a VFW show uh, that, yeah, I know you could puke. You could puke. That's fine. Um, I went to go see them play live at a VFW show, but the thing is I got my ticket and the show was booked before their record had been reviewed by everybody. You know, the whole thing was sort of booked off of the hype of a few of the singles that were on the blogs. Yeah. And then, you know, once the best new music sort of came through and the positive reviews came through, uh, the VFW was packed, you know, yep. shoulder to shoulder. Yep. Um, you know, also, uh, I saw a Converge show uh, probably uh, after they came out with uh, their latest full length record and, and Pitchfork had actually given it best new music the day of the show and the show had not been sold out prior. And and not that they wouldn't have done well because hardcore always does really well in right. Connecticut. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> the thing about it is, is that, you know, it could have been just a night where me... And all the metalheads and all the hardcore kids who saw Converge play CT in the 90s came down to the venue in New Britain uh, at this venue where they actually used to host a lot of hardcore bands. It could have been just that. But instead, uh, there were a bunch of younger kids there as well, you know, because of the best new music tag. Um, You know, kids who you would sort of stereotypically would assume would probably read pitchfork and had seen the uh the review that day and that's so that's what happened in the real world when jane doe came out so when that when that record came out what year was that it was the early 2000s right was it 2005 or 2002 dude i can't remember i I was never a huge stand for them that i have that first record before they re-recorded it um and I, I still don't think they even came close to how amazing that was in terms of like 
rolling all legit crazy hard metalcore hardcore that uh i don't want to i just get so sad about how bad that re-recorded version of the first record is but (laughs) so when jane dill when that came out all of a sudden all the fucking crest rock kids came out of the fucking woodwork it Mm. wasn't there was no best new music back then it wasn't even pitchforks review it was like that record became hot topic mall core the converge went from you know the biggest like like you know proto isis crust fucking you know just n- nasty audience to being you know purple bangs and in in a week and and being from boston it was like what the fuck it was nuts dude and and the whole hydrahead thing that whole moment when the first Drowning Man record came out and like then they went to Rock and Roll Killing Machine in like 10 minutes, that stuff was really weird. And what I'm saying is that whole ability to go and make that step and get a general kind of fervor, BNM has corralled all that. And it's a fucking calculator button. Click. Hmm. You go from just being a band with fans and that people talk about on message boards and Twitter to when you get best new music, it's like, and now you're visible in a way that you weren't before. And that's what happened, you know, at your show. Hmm. No. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen it, you know, happen numerous times. Um, And I'm just sort of curious as to sort of what the, the future looks like, you know, for pitchfork and best new music and this relevancy that they've held for a very long time, you know, with this, Condonast buyout. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have been stipulating, but the thing is, I a lot of people who, uh, you know, especially watch me, I don't know if they really know if this means anything. I mean, I, I think most internet users aren't really familiar with what exactly Condonast is or what they mean or... Okay, well, so, you know, uh, you know the combined properties of Condonast are estimated to be worth something on the order of two or three billion dollars. Sure. Um, you know, uh, Vanity Fair, all this stuff. So what's going to prove this out is what happens when Pitchfork gets as far behind a band as they have with Deaf Heaven under the umbrella of Condé. Hmm. When you see a push like that and Brandon, it's Brandon's buddy's band. He it was his little pet band. You know, I know they think that they did it there on their own. They didn't. This is a fucking pally networking bullshit thing from a guy who didn't realize how fucking much power he had. And it got through cleanly, you know, his bias just it was like it's it's like it's like fucking clap your hands, say yeah, and tapes and tapes and all that shit. You know, that minute when when they got booked on Jimmy Fallon or Letterman or what the fuck ever, those moments where you have that that huge proved out example in real life that that deaf heaven goes from nothing to massive emblematic representation of youth music because of the power of of pitchfork to to shape and sell this thing when that when that happens with whatever band it ends up being that it happens to and through that's when you're going to see what happens because because conde is not going to react in the same way, you, you know what I'm saying? They're not going to be like, you know, well, we, we bit on that one or whatever, you know, it, there's going to be a response and it's going to really shake a lot of stuff. Uh, response in, in terms of what, I mean, will they be influencing them to start doing a certain kind of coverage or will they be 
trying to preemptively prevent some kind of coverage from occurring. Well, so, okay. So th- the way the magazine industry works is you have two, two sides of the house, edit and pub. So mm-hmm. I, so I don't work there anymore for 10 years. I worked for time Inc. I worked at people magazine. I was the, the IT support for the executives of time Inc. I used to go out to fucking Ann Moore's house, which is literally the last house before the Atlantic ocean and watermill just to turn the CD player on when Cameron Diaz was doing a benefit. That was my life for about five years when I lived in New York City. When you're in a real magazine, you have pub and edit. Pub is sales, operations, all the industrial stuff. And they have staff and they have opinions and they have weight. There is no pub at Pitchfork. There never has been. It's all edit. Welcome to the fucking nightmare. Because now that you're at Condé, you're going to have input and demands from the publishing side of the house to prove your zeal, you know? Oh, you love this band, Perfect Pussy. They are so radical. They have all these radical feminist viewpoints. Did you know they were just featured in Playboy? Isn't that a problem? Those questions don't get asked when you're 100% edit. When you're pub, they get asked because it creates a conflict of interest. Sure, absolutely. But, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of... Uh politically incorrect content that might fly on some of the other, you know, publishing uh, or some of the other websites that, no, it's not, it's that Condé Nast has under its, you know, flagship. It's not about the political correctness. What I'm saying is it's about the footprint in the real world. Your mm-hmm. edit side is telling you this band is amazing. Oh my God. Ashley Simpson is the second coming. What happened when she went on SNL? Sure. That is the collapse of editorial hype, promotional zeal versus the reality that the publishing side of the house is responsible. Okay. Well, that, well then maybe I could for. compare it to, or liken it to the, to the fact, you know, I, I have a friend of mine who, you know, is very interested in music writing, who does help me upside. Uh, uh, can't talk right now. Who does help me update the site, um, you know, on a regular basis. Uh, although, you know, it could be updated more regularly as I'm hearing, but whatever. Um, you know, who, who Anthony, has you, been kind of are observing. You, are you doing the, a, are you doing a fucking soft release or something with me here? What's going on? <laughs> no, I'm not. OK, OK. Uh, but anyway, you know, he's been kind of very closely observing Pitchfork since the Condé Nast thing. And he says, three, man, three. They put up three Adele articles today. I'm telling you, dude, they're going to, you know, I, I don't know what he thinks is going to happen. But no, it's he's kind of it very is hotly, you know, he's very hotly tracking how many Adele articles he's, they drop. He's right. And there, uh, I got a couple of followers on Twitter who've been screaming about this. And I'm kind of like, well, I can't get that excited because duh. But. Yeah, you're going to get Condé trying to use the Pitchfork brand to apply it to other interests. Because, because you know, Adele's relevancy helps their other brands as well. It's not, yeah. And it, well, it's also about the fact that you're talking about celebrity maintenance, right? So, every, you know, you go back to the very beginning when we started talking. When Questlove talks about, you know, Jay-Z saying to him, dude, you can't, you know, put this record together and get a 6.5 from Pitchfork. You got to hit with those kids. That's what Condé's mentality is. Their their mentality is, well, you know, she's famous. You you need to talk about that because you're supposed to be, you know, a music website. But Pitchfork's whole, you know, tombstone has always been the the essential guide to independent music and beyond. Well, now it's just Hmm. the essential guide to beyond. Hmm. You know, it's just they're going to have to start being 
they're a, you know, I made the joke on Twitter. They're idolater. They're not idolater, but they're going to be managed like a gawker property now. They're going to be pointed in directions. That mm. never would have happened before. It wouldn't have happened before, but it sounds like going back to one of the earliest points in our conversation that sort of allowing what's hitting, what's relevant, what's popular to kind of guide what you actually end up covering should have been something that they would have ended up doing anyway, correct? Or Well, no, and I said that all along. <clears throat> you yeah. had you had the selfish, positively selfish uh, subjective direction of Ryan about what was and wasn't Pitchfork's, you know, boundary. Okay, so I mean, if 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 this boundary should be broken down anyway, then what exactly is the danger in Condonast kind of guiding them in this way if they are? Absolutely zero. It's better, and I said that. I've said that in a couple of places. It's better for Pitchfork with the control and the, the power that it has to influence. Sure. To be controlled by checks and balances. Okay, so so you think this is something that's going to be healthy for the website going into the future? <clears throat> yeah, in the sense that they're not going to be able to fuck up anymore. Sure, you know um, they're gonna they're gonna you know so Chuck Klosterman's you know piece with Taylor Swift and GQ has been all over this week. Um, that's the kind of stuff you're going to see on Pitchfork. It's not going to be about Taylor Swift, but you're going to see the snowfalls start to be about. Uh, current th you're not going to see a snowfall article about ovals 94 discount that that article you know mark that's mark richardson that's not just mark richardson that is pitchfork swan song for pitchfork that that feature on 94 discount mark richardson's favorite record one of my favorite records it is the meeting point for me and mark um to the extent that we worked together for all those years that record was so fucking transformative for obsessive, like I said, you know, back there, music people who were obsessed with what could happen in music, who, who would just, when, when Girl Boy came out, the single from that Aphex Twin Richard D. James record, and, and then when Window Liquor came out, these, these records just fucking totally reset your entire fucking mentality around music. This can happen? What? And, and that's, that goes all the way back to when Art of Noise came out in 83, 84 with Moments in Love and Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise. It was like, holy shit, is this music? What is this? And when things happen that are that alien and fucked up and crazy, it's people like us that go nuts for that. Condé Nast is not going to no go nuts for that. And, and so when you have that instance of the cheerleading impulse that, that you and I and everybody else who goes crazy for music and just can't help them fucking selves to go nuts. Like this fucking makes me go crazy. I'm not fucking going to kill myself because this record might come out two years from now. I'm going to fucking miss it. Hmm. That is gone. It's, it's not going to happen again. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's it seems like um, it 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 seems like if anything of value is going to be lost in 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 sort of this uh, buyout, it's going to be that then. Yeah, it is. They're they're not going to be able to be selfishly self directive to the extent that they have claimed to be hmm. and been at various points. Sure. Okay. So 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 you're saying you know the kind of uh, uh, favoritism they may show to. 
uh, a death heaven or, you know, an animal collective or something like that, you know, that might come around in a more rare fashion. You can't, you can't, if you're owned by Condé Nast, you can't launch a band anymore because the bands, you know, you got, you got problems. You got PR companies, you got fucking, you know, not labels anymore, but you got distribution groups, you got beggars group, you got Excel, all these connections, connections. Um, those become real battlegrounds when you're owned by a publicly traded company. And mm-hmm. nobody at Pitchfork gets that. Having said all of that, you know, we, we could probably go a million years on all of this shit. And there's probably going to be more to come to react to, you know, as far as music industry and, and, and as well as Pitchfork and, you know, needle drop stuff in the future to discuss. So, you know, considering how fruitful this conversation has been, I think we're going to have to call it here. And I'll just invite you on for another conversation in, in the future, Chris. Sure. Yeah. Works for me, man. I mean, this is fucking I might as well be on the fucking therapist's couch. This is great. <laughs> well, I think I'll have to charge you the next time that you come by. Then. <laughs> well, no, you could then you'd have to publish the YouTube rates, man. OK, OK. Tra- All right. trade, se- trade secrets. Anthony. Trade secrets. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I get it. I get it. I get it. OK, these these conversations will remain free then. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on, dude. Oh, man. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. And, and you know, I, I love going back and forth with you. So it was really fun. And down in the description box, I mean, should I link to your Twitter account? I mean, what else should I link to? Uh, if you want to really link to shallowrewards.com, I'm forwarding the podcast site to there. That'd be nice. Okay, we will do that. And Sweet. Uh, Chris Ott, thanks for being a guest on the show. Anthony Brantano, thank you for having me, bro. 